Part 3, The Struggle of Chanel Miller After numerous trials, the assailant Brock Turner was found guilty of all of the sexual assault crimes alleged by Miller, and the sentencing was to be held soon after. For the charges that Turner faced, he could be sentenced up to 14 years in prison, and the prosecutors believed that it was likely he would be sentenced to around six years. After experiencing a long period of darkness, Miller finally saw light. The prosecutors let Miller write a victim's account to articulate the impact that this case had on her. Just as Miller was still formulating her thoughts about what to say, she received a phone call from a probation officer. In the phone call, Miller told that probation officer that she was writing a statement that can be shared, and she wished that Turner could receive his punishment and undergo therapy classes while serving the sentences so that he could avoid hurting other girls in future. However, that probation officer quoted Miller out of context in her report, stating that Miller wished that Turner would be sentenced to less than a year and could continue his classes. The officer regarded Miller's repression of her feelings and her forced calmness as signs that she did not suffer much trauma and used phrases that were designed to help acquit Turner in her report on him. Her document stated that Turner had sincerely realized his mistakes, but in reality, Turner had not once admitted any wrongdoing, and instead had continued to insist that Miller had had consensual sex with him. Furthermore, appended to the report were nearly 40 letters of appeal that had been written on his behalf by his professors and coaches. At that point, the only weapon Miller had left was her court statement. Miller sat in her chair and typed relentlessly. She spent a total of nine hours and wrote as many as 20 pages of content before continuously refining and editing what she had written. On the day of the sentencing, Miller read out her court statement in public. People could be heard crying from the seats behind her, and everyone's heart went out to her. By contrast, Turner's personal statement was extremely brief, comprising only 10 sentences, with only one part conveying a watered-down apology. Very soon, the moment arrived for the sentence to be pronounced. The judge listed reason after reason, such as, Turner was young, he did not have any criminal history, and he was not in possession of any weapons. He mentioned the impact that media attention had had on the defendant and the defendant's family, as well as the testimonies of the defendant's family and friends that affirmed his character, and declared that he found Turner's remorse to be particularly genuine and sincere. Therefore, he ultimately decided to give Turner a lenient sentence of just six months of imprisonment. What was more, if Turner performed well in prison, he could receive a further reduction of his sentence by three months, which meant that he could only need to serve three months in jail. After she went home, reality sunk in for Miller, and she realized that all of the hurt and the trauma that she had suffered for as long as one and a half years were, in fact, only worth three months. Miller suddenly doubted all that she had done in the past one year or so, doubted that there was any meaning at all in the fight that she had been putting up for so long. This was destined to be the most painful night for her, but Miller knew that she had to live through it in order to move forward. She stared at her journal, in which she had repeatedly written the sentence, you are worth more than three months. She consoled herself that all the pain she was experiencing then would be worth it, that she was not alone in this battle against sexual assault, that she should not be perturbed by the criticisms of those who did not know her at all. She encouraged herself to look forward, to put these dark days behind her, and to start afresh. Right on the second day after she had gathered courage within herself to face the future, a reporter from the website BuzzFeed wrote to her to request for her authorization to publish her court statement on their website. Once this account was published, it attracted widespread attention and reached 80,000 readers in just a few hours. 
Thereafter, The Washington Post and The Guardian as well as other esteemed newspaper companies also followed suit in publishing the statement, and many netizens on Twitter circulated it widely. Miller received many people's support and even obtained a letter of support from the White House written by then-Vice President Joe Biden. Millions of people praised her courage and affirmed her worth. All of a sudden, things had taken a turn in her favor. After this, Turner launched a counterattack on Miller's accusations and filed an appeal on the basis of insufficient evidence. This time round, Miller calmly accepted the challenge and began preparing for the appeal hearing. By that time, the statement that Miller had written had raised a storm in society, and people had begun to sign a petition to remove the judge that had given the unfair verdict. After 95,000 signatures and boxes full of petition documents were submitted, that judge was finally removed. Subsequently, Miller won the appeal, and Turner ultimately had no choice but to accept the punishment he deserved. Just as Miller's statement was receiving widespread attention, people also started to express displeasure towards Stanford University because of their inactivity. To address this, Stanford University issued a declaration which expressed no remorse and merely stated that they had extended help to the victim anonymously. Yet in reality, after the incident had happened, Stanford University did not send anyone to contact Miller, and Miller was also unable to seek corresponding help from them. Miller felt that Stanford University should develop a protocol for helping sexual assault victims and think of ways to prevent similar incidents from happening in the future. Finally, Stanford University contacted Miller, hoping that they could provide her with some material compensation in order to avoid any further negative criticisms or lawsuits. Miller had originally wanted to reject their offer straight away, but the long process of the trial had already caused her and her family to suffer many heavy financial burdens, and her own sister Tiffany even had to receive therapy. Hence Miller decided to accept Stanford's compensation. At the same time, she requested that Stanford University assign a case manager specially to provide services to victims, such that victims could contact this manager at any time in order to receive help and support. Miller did not wish for her helpless situation then to repeat itself. She still hoped that the team in Stanford University that was in charge of public safety could be provided with appropriate training so that they could inform victims of the relevant legal procedures and options whenever such support was required, install lighting as well as closed-circuit television surveillance in high-danger zones, systematically review all incidents related to fraternity operations and campus violence, and make the relevant statistics accessible to public so that people can make inquiries about them. In this way, everyone's alertness would be heightened. The negotiations between Miller and Stanford University were not very smooth at the beginning. Reforming the school system was a very long process, but Miller's effort didn't end up in vain. After about half a year, the staff at Stanford University informed Miller that the specialized case manager that she had requested for had been put in place. This was, undoubtedly, a good first step. Just as Miller herself had written in the book, she guarded the truth closely, as if protecting a tiny flame in a thunderstorm. And this flame is like the flame of stars, rebelling against prevailing injustice with its weak light, and in so doing, it sparked off the reformation of an entire system.